listening to Insight. Welcome to the program. I'm Philippa Tolley. In this week's edition, we explore New Zealand's suicide rates. Every week on average, 10 people in New Zealand commit suicide. New Zealand has some of the highest rates of youth suicide in the developed world, and suicide rates for Māori are 54% higher than they are for non-Māori. The Ministry of Health describes suicide prevention as complex and as with no quick fix. But as the prevention strategy that has been in place for 10 years comes to an end, where to from here? And a warning, some of the content in this program may be upsetting for some people. If you'd like help, there are numbers to call on the Insight webpage. Fit and pounding a punching bag, Joshua Simmons has emerged on the other side of a crisis that at one stage threatened to take his life. Last year, when I got out of a long-term relationship, one of the hardest things was sort of, I suppose, coping with what you're going through and sort of didn't really know, never experienced that sort of, you know, those emotions before. You know, it didn't matter what was going on in your life or the other good aspects, sort of that one thing changed and sort of was like, all you could think about was the negative aspects and it sort of it kept going down and down and sort of, you know, it just get worse and worse. Like many other young men, talking about how he felt was hard. There's sort of that stigma, I suppose, when, you know, you, you want to talk about your feelings and stuff, that you shouldn't, especially as a man, sort of, you've got that expectation that, you know, you shouldn't feel emotions and, you know, you sort of should be this rock. Joshua Simmons feels it's important to speak out about his experiences to help others, but he's not alone with those feelings of desperation. Provisional figures for the year 2014-15 released by the Chief Coroner indicate that 564 people took their own lives, the highest number in the eight years since these figures were released. The most recent finalised statistics from the Ministry of Health show that in 2012, just over 3,000 people were treated in hospital after a suicide attempt, having seriously harmed themselves. This insight asks if New Zealand will ever find a way to reduce such grim statistics that are an overwhelming tragedy for family and friends and a serious drain on society. Every year, a significant number of young people in New Zealand find themselves under stress and contemplating taking their own lives. Joshua Simmons struggled with how he was feeling, not wanting to be judged and trying to fulfil what he describes as a social obligation to fit into the norm. But in the end, it was all too much. My last point, um, I mean, yeah, I had a few, I suppose, suicide attempts and um, there was one point where yeah, the, um, the police got called out and they were looking for me all night sort of thing because I took off. I suppose a big thing for me was sort of, all you could think about was just, oh yeah, you know, let's end it, you know. There's no point in going on, just trying to, I suppose, end the pain. And then the big things for me that calm me down, I suppose, is you start to, I guess, to think about things and I'd sort of be thinking about my daughter and, I guess, the ramifications of what would happen if I was to, you know, kill myself and then she wouldn't have a dad. From there, it sort of, I'd start to think more and more about those sorts of aspects and, you know, I ended up, yeah, I guess, coming back to normality and got out of that state and returned home and then, yeah. Time with a counsellor. Help from a GP for insomnia and a flatmate who treated him as just a normal person all helped him turn the situation around. Another important element was regular exercise. That commitment to keeping fit led to Joshua taking part in a charity boxing match, raising funds to help with mental health and suicide awareness. The police are often the service people first turn to when the situation gets beyond control. 
Inspector Sue Douglas is the project manager for its mental health team, established just two and a half years ago. The team was set up to try to improve the way officers respond to those experiencing mental distress, and Sue Douglas says the demands are ever-increasing. Uh, especially for threatened and attempted suicide, um, since 1996 um, it's been a steady increase of 8% per year of um, calls to police for, for that particular um, uh, crisis. We have a generic code which is um, mental health, so it's, it's a catch-all uh, and there's sort of no clinical rigour around that, it's just what we call um, mental health and then we have another one which is attempted and, and threatened suicide. And we used to have our mental health code would be about, um, suicide would be about half of our mental health code and now a threatened and attempted suicide code is about the same so a significant increase. Figures released to Insights on incidents coded by officers as attempted suicide show a nearly 50% increase in the last five years. Last year almost 15,000 attempted suicides were recorded. Until May this year police have been called almost 7,000 times to help people who've tried to take their own lives. Inspector Douglas says the level of increase is distressing but also takes a significant amount of police time and resource. It's really hard to actually quantify that. We've never done it as a country uh, to actually understand what that full demand is but uh, from England and a few other countries with uh, similar mental health systems and police jurisdictions they report it's anywhere between 16 and 24% of police work has a, a mental health element. Leilani Fina'i Clark was one of those who needed the help of emergency services. Three and a bit years ago, she lost her 14-year-old daughter, Sahara, to suicide. She knew something wasn't right with her daughter, but put it down to teenage angst. Leilani Fina'i Clark now works to give those in the Pacifica community information about the risks and ways to help those who might be suicidal, knowledge she wishes she had when her daughter was in need. I had no idea about risk factors or protective factors um, and that blame, shame and stigma that is really thick, not just within communities but really profoundly in the Pacific communities um, was really condensed in our family, for example. Um, when we lost our daughter, the last thing I wanted to admit to people was how she passed away. Um, because I was so embarrassed, I was so shame about it. And the reason why I was so shame about it is because I feared the blame from others. I feared the blame that I was a bad mum. Um, and that stigma, um, there was a, um, a few suicides prior to our daughter. Um, I remember asking the girls, you would talk to me if anything was, you know, if you weren't happy or anything like that. But when I think about it, the way that I asked it was really leading. It was a leading question. And I didn't directly ask that really hard question to them, which was, are you thinking of taking your own life? And the reason why I never asked that question is because my ego was in the way. Um, as a mum, I wish that I had got rid of that ego and that fear of being labelled a bad mum and asked that really hard question. Because if I had... Perhaps she would have told me she needed help. The organisation she works for, LeVar, is based in South Auckland and leads suicide prevention strategy for Pacifica communities around the country. Hi, it's Auntie Tai here. <laughs> 
guess what? What? I want to introduce to you a very special friend of mine. Her name is Auntie D. And it's an online well-being tool that can help you through difficult situations. Along with online assistants such as Auntie D, Lavar's chief executive, Monique Faliafa, who is also a clinical psychologist, explains the new approaches they've been adopting to counter suicide rates she describes as unacceptably high. So a new one, uh, a new tactic, if you like, for solving Pacific um, suicide in our communities is the community-funded initiatives. So we funded 17 organisations or groups throughout New Zealand to come up with their own solutions to prevent suicide in their own communities. And out of that we've measured it really tightly and we're actually um, developing seven principles of successful suicide prevention in Pacific communities. And we can see that if if programmes don't have these seven principles, they're not going to work. Those principles are still under wraps, but she says the preventative factors that help individuals to be resilient in stressful times are known. We have something called the top five tactics, which is, you know, talking about the issue. It's about connecting with your family and community so that you're contributing in a meaningful way to give you purpose in life. Um, It's having strong families. Uh, It's having strong cultural identity because we have good evidence now that if your cultural identity is strong, so is your mental well-being. Um, And spirituality, which of course is strong in our Pacific communities. So those top five tactics, um, if we have them happening, Uh, We don't need any tools to prevent suicide, Uh, but um, we just want to equip our communities where it is happening uh, so that they know what to do to prevent it, and also, um, should it happen, they know what to do. Dr Faliafa says one big change for Pacifica families has been the willingness to speak about suicide. What I can see and hear and feel in Pacifica communities is a sense of readiness to address the situation. So whilst that might seem like, oh God, we haven't come far, actually that tapu, um, sacred area of talking about suicide, um, now is on the table to discuss. Because previously, what was it like? It it certainly wasn't expected. Uh, Yeah, no, we couldn't talk about suicide very well because people were mostly fearful. And also, culturally, traditionally, suicide uh, can link back to fairly sacred concepts around breaching tapu in the family, who will then your family will then be very ashamed and can lead to problems in the future. New Zealand has the grim status of leading the world in its suicide figures for young people. But the statistics also show up contrasts between town and country. The Ministry of Health's official figures for 2012, the latest available, give the suicide rate in rural areas as 14.6 per 100,000 people. That compares with 12 per 100,000 in urban areas. The calves are probably about a day old. Uh, those are the freshly carved ones today. These will be day befores. Neil Baitup runs a dairy farm and 650 cows in Tahoe and Waikato and has been on his land since the 70s. I don't think the calves are going to run anywhere at the moment. That's a little new one, isn't it, Katie? Yeah, yeah. that's new. It's really new. Definitely new, isn't it? He's the chairman of the Rural Support Trust for Waikato, Hauraki and Coromandel and says calls to the trust suggest that with the downturn in dairy prices, many farmers are feeling the strain. In the dairy sector, obviously, at the moment, um, financial um, stress is, is, is really the big one. Um, and financial stress is sort of plays itself out in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, it can be relationship problems. It um, can be relationships between 
you know, the, the farmer and staff. Um, in some cases, the farmers had to let staff go, so they're actually working harder themselves. So th th there's quite a bit of that in there. But I, I guess there's always that um, that thing in behind that farmers do work on their own a lot, and that you know they don't have a big support network around them. So if things start to get on top of them, you know, mentally and that sort of thing, it can sort of build on itself. So it's really good if they can actually seek help. That isolation only increases the need for relatives and friends to be aware of how individuals are coping. It's important for people to keep an eye on their neighbours and their friends and just watch for any changes in their behaviour or in their mental state and try and support them and if they think they need help, you know, get in touch with somebody that can actually help them. As a farmer himself, he says living on the job can make things worse because you actually live on the farm, you never actually leave it um, and you, know, you don't knock off at five o'clock and it's finished. Uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear it pouring down with rain and you think about the cows out there on the paddock and are they making mud, um, you know, are there any calves being born and that sort of situation. So you, you never actually leave it. To try to get a handle on how information about suicide and self-harm is collected, analysed and published, a report has been prepared by the Office of the Auditor-General. It highlights the scale of suicide, saying that in 2013, suicide was the third leading cause of premature death after heart disease and lung cancer. The main author, Leanne Arker, says while not wanting to put a value on human life, the report does update suicide's economic impact. With inflation, that the economic cost of a single suicide in 2015 would be over $600,000, and the non-economic cost, so that's the impact on society, is $3. million. So when you put it in that co in that context, that's the loss of the person's um, contribution to society, to the economy, um, and and to their families, and the other benefits that they might have if they were alive. The report did find gaps in the way information is collected and presented. Leanne Arker hopes the recommendations will lead to better strategies. The community groups and the agencies rely on good information to track whether the actions that they are taking are working and to identify if there's a new area previously unidentified where people need help and they could act. So I do think that good information eventually leads to better decision making. The complexity of suicide is only growing as the makeup of society in New Zealand gets ever more diverse. The increase in the number of residents identifying themselves as Asian prompted Auckland University's Centre for Asian and Ethnic Minority Health Research to investigate what factors were contributing to suicide in that community. One of the report's authors and the centre director, Elsie Ho, says they found that often people didn't seek help directly. We can see that a lot of the Asian people would not directly approach mainstream services for emotional issues. However, they might approach their GP for physical complaints and so on. So if we miss that warning sign that in fact there are underlying emotional issues affecting this particular individual or the family, we would just treat it as a physical problem instead of trying to help with some of the emotional issues.
She explains that as in Māori and Pacifica communities, mental health problems have traditionally carried a stigma. In some culture, when people are thinking of getting married, they would look at the family history in terms of whether there are a certain long-term illness or mental health issues. So people would try to hide their mental illness problem because that would greatly affect the people in their future prospects. And for Elsie Ho, the official prevention plans don't take enough account of the cultural differences that might be at play, especially when it comes to help for Asian families. The implications of that fear and shame led a Hamilton-based community group to turn to entertainment to begin to change traditional attitudes. The I Am He, Her Charitable Trust launched a video recently using local leaders in a Bollywood-style film to try to bring a sense of normality to the issue of mental illness. Sokol Muhammad is one of the Trust's founders and she believes self-harm and possible suicide is often hidden in New Zealand's Indian community, even among those who might be stressed or depressed. If you ask them, majority of them would say that they've had thoughts of self-harm, especially within our community, but um, they wouldn't report it because then that person would be considered weak or you committed, you tried to commit suicide, so you can't, um, they, they can't put themselves through that, so they would rather keep it within them uh, without realising how much harm they're, they're causing the people around them, how much uh, they're damaging the life that they've got. So it's, um, I think it's a greater issue than we think. She wants to encourage people to stop making decisions based on what others might think, but concedes any change could be slow. For each uh, youth that we focus on, we've got a set of parents or a set of grandparents who have the older generational thought. And if, if it's easy for the youth to come forward and say, OK, I'm ready to change, they, there's 30 or 40 or 50 percent of their mindset really focused on what would my parents say. Yes, I can uh, you know, stop caring about what the community says or what will people say, but I can't really turn a blind eye to what my parents say and I really, it's, it comes down to disobeying. That's a huge part of our culture that we can't disobey our parents or our, the elderly in the family. So again, that's the thing. I think it's going to probably take a long time, but everything starts from a step and I think that's what we're doing, one step at a time. New Zealand may be becoming increasingly more diverse, but many other factors behind suicide remain the same. Mark Lawrence, the New Zealand Chair of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, or Tute Akaakaroa, says many of those indicators have been well known for some time. There's a common theme with a, a lot of the suicide uh, that we see, particularly within Indigenous populations, and particularly if you look at youth, for example, a lot of the youth suicide problems, often they're, they're residing in, in the most deprived areas of our society. They often have had difficult early life experiences that make them vulnerable and as they manage surviving through adolescent and teen years and become adults if they haven't had appropriate uh, treatment and access to services early on those same issues become apparent in adulthood. Mark Lawrence, who also works as a consultant psychiatrist for the Bay of Plenty District Health Board, wants access to mental health services to be easy. I think part of the difficulty, particularly with, with this group and particularly young group, is there's lots of barriers that prevent people from accessing help. So obviously things like stigma 
and the negative attitude people have towards mental health, and there's a whole range of interventions that have tried to counteract that. Dr Lawrence believes that New Zealand is moving in the right direction, but more could be done. And speaking personally, Dr Lawrence wonders whether the fact that young Māori men have the highest rates of suicide influences how much attention the tragic problem is given. I've always had this thought, if the suicide rates for, say, non-Māori were twice as they were for Māori, would there be greater intervention if the majority of the population were dying at greater frequency. But what to do next? Lifeline's Kate Goodward is the organisation's Suicide Prevention and Community Relationships Manager and she runs courses to help organisations develop the skills to support people who may be heading towards a crisis point. After a day training, she spoke to me about her belief that it's time to step into the next stage of support to help people see a future ahead rather than choosing to take their life. We're pretty good at the stage of asking about suicide. Not many people know what to do after that. And I think that's where we're letting ourselves down. We've got a lot of awareness programs going on out there in the community where people are saying we should talk about suicide and we absolutely should. But we should do that safely and we should do that with the next step in mind, which is how do I hold that person emotionally so that that person can let their story about suicide out and then they can make the decisions around what they would like to happen next. She worries that some professionals have a sense that suicide is an inevitable outcome for some of those with mental illness. For people with bipolar and schizophrenia and those other types of disorders, people often think that suicide will be the outcome. Um, And it's kind of a hands-off attitude. We know that's not true. We know with the right support and the right people that a life can be really fulfilling and you can get through crisis. She says the focus is on the community to make a real difference, but in turn there's a need for support and training to help people deal with what is often behind people's distress. Life issues and how to deal with life issues are are a real factor. Um, Often if I'm working with um, NGOs or DHBs, for example, um, yeah, sort of frontline services, they find funding for good quality training, for example, workforce development, really difficult to attain. Um, and that's kind of, that's really disheartening when you know what, from a peer perspective, um, what that means, that there will be other people out there in distress who will not get the sort of help that they need because um, we're all about saving money and not saving lives. Lifeline Survival has been under threat in recent months after it lost government contracts for other support services also provided by the organisation. That change in cash flow has undermined the funding model used to pay for the crisis phone service. The chair of Lifeline's board, Ben Palmer, says the need for a crisis service hasn't diminished. It's been operating for more than 50 years and on average 15,000 callers come into the support line every month. This is an interesting fact. You know, over I think it's 68% of all callers are male, um, which is perhaps not this, the sort of percentage you would expect in the first instance when you think about it. So we are providing a service to people where they can talk to us anonymously, uh, they can talk about anything they like, and they will get a very, very good hearing, um, non, non-judgmental, and they'll be you know, dealt with skillfully by people who are really well trained. So uh, it, 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 it's a critical service to New Zealanders from that point of view. The last thing the Green Party spokesperson on mental health, Kevin Haig, would like to see is any reduction in services already available.
He already thinks not enough money is being spent on mental health and repeats the parallel drawn before between the money spent on road safety and mental health promotion, pointing out that nearly twice as many people take their own lives as die in car crashes. In the case of people who die from suicide, the years of life lost to them, the effect on their families, the effect on the wider society and the people around them, um, means that actually saving that life, preventing that suicide in the first place, would actually not only be the right thing to do, but would have um, a very great economic return. The priority for suicide prevention spending should be very much greater than it is currently. The future direction of suicide prevention has been worked on now. The current National Suicide Prevention Strategy and Action Plan both have an end date of 2016, although more recent initiatives for district health boards will continue. The work going on at the moment is on what's called a Suicide Prevention Outcomes Framework, but its final shape may be some way off, particularly given that it must fit in with a whole range of other social policies being developed, such as those protect children from abuse and reducing domestic violence. The Director of Mental Health, John Crawshaw, describes the policy landscape at the moment as very crowded. In a sense, New Zealand has done, uh, as it were, the immediate and easy initiatives to drive down the suicide rates. Now we're getting into what is often regarded as the heavy duty and tough stuff where we're actually looking at a much more systematic approach. And in that space, talking about suicide prevention without actually looking at the wider, um, as it were, social sector and justice sector intervention programs becomes unhelpful. Dr Crawshaw acknowledges that rates have been static for some years after positive declines in the 1990s. He says analysing what changes to make is difficult given the variations in circumstances and complexities involved. But Dr Crawshaw says by going beyond the figures and looking at human characteristics such as well-being and resilience, it will be easier to respond. After spending well over 10 years working with those affected by suicide, Dr Crawshaw says his contact with that overwhelming grief keeps driving him to find solutions. In that time I've had the, I think, privilege and a tragedy to speak to a number of families and loved ones who, of people who had died through suicide. Each of those stories has a significant, for me, emotional response. I know that uh, it's just not about numbers, it's about real people whose lives have been seriously adversely affected. Just labelling it as suicide doesn't actually cut the mustard. Uh, We know that we can make real differences and we know that to do that now we have to engage the community. Government can only do so much in this space. And others are also hoping for change. Dr Lawrence wants the focus to be firmly on youth and reducing the rate of suicide among young Maori men. He says the loss not only to individuals and whānau but also society is enormous. World War One, World War Two, where there's significant loss of Maori men who went and fought, that had a huge impact on future leadership within Maori society. If you use that same analogy to the situation where we have where the youth suicide rates for Māori men are two times that of non-Māori, and you know that's still a significant cohort of, of young Māori men that could be future teachers, leaders, doctors, 
in our society. As someone working in suicide prevention, Leilani Finai Clark wants people to be aware that there is no one reason why anyone, including her daughter, takes their life, and equally, there is no one solution. But as a mother and part of a still grieving family, she knows where her focus must be. When you lose a child, it's a pain that you can't actually explain. But I'm very mindful I still have children here with me. And they are my priority. We will never forget our, our daughter. But we need to really look after the ones that are here. She's determined to make sure communities understand how big the problem is and that no one can be deemed safe and that anyone can be at risk. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this program, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz. Our Twitter handle is InsightRNZ. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Gail Woods with technical production by Dan Beban.